Hello, and welcome to Walking with the Tengu, a podcast where we usually explore classic texts for the modern martial artist. As you can probably guess, that means we're not actually looking at a classic text today. And that's because I sign off most episodes with a reminder to not just talk about philosophy, but like your martial art, live it. Well, today I'd like to chat about a real-life application of both philosophy and the martial arts that occurred with a training partner of mine. I have a training partner at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu who started just about a year ago. He's been training multiple times a week and has really improved of late. Like any of us, when he first came in during sparring, he was pretty easy to deal with. We could put ourselves in what we would call bad positions and make our way out with ease. He, oddly enough, was still more challenging than the average newcomer. Usually, when a new person comes in, they're like a fish out of water, ineffectually flopping around with little to no effectiveness and what they're doing other than tiring themselves out. I asked him if he had ever trained before, and he told me he had not. And honestly, I thought he was a liar at first, because it was clear from how he handled himself this was not his first time wrestling. Later, I found out that during his youth back in his home country, it was a pretty daily occurrence for the kids to play wrestle at school in a sandpit for fun. It also ended up being a pretty common form of conflict resolution. The two having a conflict would go in, wrestle to settle their differences, shake hands after, and go on with their lives. Quite frankly, it's, this seems like something that should be implemented at schools all across the U.S., in my opinion. Either way, he was a quick learner and has gained skill to the point now where he is not what we would call, quote, an easy role. If he keeps training at this rate, I foresee him easily surpassing me in the years to come. He's quite a bit younger than me, and from time to time, as happens in martial arts schools everywhere, we get to talking about life. It turns out he's been working at a restaurant, and the head cook is what I would term a bully. Verbally abusive on a constant daily basis, racist, sexist, and abusive comments, yelling, and threats. Because of the time we live in, I'll point out that neither are white but they are both from different cultures and skin colors. We might describe the abusive cook as black and my training partner as brown. Now, I do need to interject that I've only heard one side of the story, and with his permission, am relating it here for its application of how the non-physical side of martial arts training is of at least equal, if not greater, importance than the physical. For quite a while now, my friend has endured daily abuse from this cook. I've explored alternatives with him. I likened it at one point to what I teach my kids from the Gracie Bullyproof program. One of the things that's cool about this program is that it has some rules of engagement that it teaches the kids, and I'm quite happy with them. The first rule is, avoid the fight at all costs. The second rule is, if physically attacked, defend yourself. The third rule is what I brought up with my training partner. When verbally attacked, follow the three T-steps, talk, tell, tackle. For my kids, talk means to tell the bully, hey, leave me alone. I don't like what you're doing. Tell means to tell some kind of authority figure, a teacher, a principal, or maybe a parent. 
The expectation with that is that most of the time, if you just stand up to the bully, they back down and leave you alone. If they don't, then getting some kind of authority involved can usually solve the problem. Unfortunately, I know from personal experience that schools will often sweep bullying under the rug and just hope if they ignore it, it'll go away or take care of itself. Of course, they'll never say that publicly, but functionally, that's what happens every single day. This is where tackle comes in. As I told my training partner, there comes a point where physical action may become necessary. I couldn't tell him where that line was, but that he'd have to make that decision for himself. When applying jiu-jitsu in self-defense situations, I refer to something I call the are-you-done-yet submission. This is where you take a dominant position, where your attacker can't knock you out, but you can choose to maintain control or finish your attacker with a submission. But you don't. Instead, you wait and either hold them there until they give up or help, maybe backup, arrives. The daily verbal abuse from the bully head cook would have led any reasonable person to presume that the bully wanted to do physical violence to my friend. I suggested to him that if he does end up in a physical confrontation with this guy at some point, that he not strike him, but establish control and use the are-you-done-yet submission. But first, he had to navigate the talk and tell phases. So the first was to tell the guy to his face that he needed to stop treating my friend that way. That's the talk step. The second was to talk to management about it. That's the tell step. Well, talking to the guy didn't do anything. The daily racist, abusive comments continued, and telling management was a waste of time because they just looked the other way. As it turns out, they were dependent on the head cook. Management was too afraid to confront the cook themselves, and the owners are non-existent never show up. So that was that. Naturally, I of course suggested to my friend that he find a job somewhere else. Which brings us to last week. Apparently, last week, things were pretty busy at the restaurant. My friend was waiting tables, and there was a backlog of drinks that needed to be brought out to their tables, and another co-worker, a woman, who the bully head cook is known to be angling to get into her pants, was idling about on her phone. My friend asked her to help him with the drinks, and she did, but she was angry about it. She went back into the kitchen and said something to the bully head cook angrily, that my friend was unable to overhear, at which point the head cook came rushing out, yelling obscenities and racist comments at him again, and threatening physical violence. So my friend called his bluff. He told him, okay, let's fight. The guy immediately assumed what might be described as a fighting stance and started bouncing around. My friend told him, no, not here, but over there, across the street in the park, after work. Then he calmly went back to doing his job. His confidence was such that he was able to continue performing like normal at his job. The same could not be said for the bully, who went back to the kitchen and for the rest of the shift did not once verbally abuse my friend. Instead, he put his headphones on, cooked, yelled loudly to his music, and paced. Multiple times the rest of the shift, he came out to look at my friend, and when he did, the cook's hands were shaking, but he didn't say anything. Management, of course, then decided to get involved and advised my friend not to fight the cook. In a sort of secondhand way, I think they also tried to intimidate him into backing down 
and just taking the abuse as they threaten to get his family involved. Like so many of us here, he comes from an immigrant family with very traditional family hierarchies. It would be a big deal for him, for his family to get involved. And obviously, being involved in a fight in many cultures, regardless of the rightness of it, is looked down on as a problem. I would posit this is also likely where systemic abuse is often accepted in so-called traditional cultures. Either way, in my opinion, if management wanted to get involved, they should have when my friend went to them about getting the abusive co-worker to stop his bullying. Well, the end of shift came, and the cook just left. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. No physical altercation took place. It certainly could have, but it did not in this case, and the abuse has since stopped. And this is really the best-case scenario. That time, you were ready to face a conflict, and nothing happened. Okay, so let's analyze this a little. It's a simple scenario that had multiple potential outcomes, not all good. A good outcome is what I refer to as a win condition, how we measure success in a conflict. My training partner and friend had for months endured verbal abuse in the workplace. Comments about his race, gender, sexuality, masculinity, and physical characteristics were a daily occurrence. He explored a variety of options, including verbally standing up to the bully and attempting to involve a higher authority that should ultimately be responsible for the management of such workplace abuse. Yet, as so often happens, nothing happened. So, my friend decided to call the abuser's bluff on physical violence. One key point to remember here is that, at least in the U.S., this would be considered legally mutual combat, and thus would not be applicable to self-defense laws. It could very easily turn into felony assault. This is, in part, why I advised him against any kind of striking. As the inevitable security and cell phone camera footage was found, and as the incident was investigated, if he could honestly say he never struck the guy, and that was backed up with evidence, and it was clear the other person was attempting to punch him, again, backed up with evidence, well, that would go a long way towards avoiding an assault charge. As soon as you start hitting someone you need to make sure you're legally justified to use that level of force. It is absolutely an assault charge, unless you can meet the criteria of the exceptions for self-defense. And as they would be meeting for mutual combat, no self-defense exceptions would be applicable for their conflict. Striking this bully would have been a sure way to end up in big trouble. However, having acknowledged the fact that this could have gone very wrong... We also have to remember that most bullies and abusers do so out of a perception of strength for themselves and weakness on the part of their victims. They don't want to have equal mutual combat. They want an easy win for their ego by threatening others they can push around and abuse. The real conflict here occurred between each of their levels of confidence. On the one hand was the cook, I have no idea what his level of skill was, However, after having his bluff called, the pacing and the trembling hands were both indicators that he didn't feel confident in himself. If he had perceived weakness or lack of confidence in my friend, maybe he would have gone through with meeting for the fight. He didn't see that, though. He saw my friend calmly going about his job normally, as if nothing out of the ordinary had happened. 
This is likely what made him reconsider his life choices and just leave after work. This is why we train the martial arts. It's not always about winning a fight. Sometimes it's about preventing the fight from ever occurring in the first place. A year of jiu-jitsu with some MMA classes mixed in, and my friend was able to calmly and articulately face potential physical violence from an abuser with confidence. Learning how to grapple with punches probably helped. Having a plan for how to deal with that threat was the foundation on which his confidence was built. That confidence and calm, then, in the face of chaos, is the fundamental, most basic philosophical trait needed by any martial artist when facing a high-stress combative incident. If you can remain calm, you'll be able to make better choices, retain better control of yourself, and ultimately, if you exude the presence of calm confidence in the face of a human predator, there's a high probability they will decide you are not, in fact, prey to be consumed. The paradox is that the more you learn to fight, the less likely you should find yourself in conflict. So, as always, remember, don't just talk about philosophy, but like your martial art, live it.